Um, just before we get into the Word, I, uh, while we were worshiping, I had a sense that there's someone here dealing with, um, not dealing with, that's the wrong word, um, right, on, right in the middle of a decision, and you feel right now kind of paralyzed, you're having a leaning one specific way, and it's going to really be pretty dramatic for you and your family, and there's a, 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 a kind of a, a hesitancy, um, and my sense is that this is something in the next two or three weeks, maybe a month or so, and some some major stuff shifts for you uh, as as you pull the trigger on this decision, and I just felt that I wanted to say to you, pull the trigger, you're okay. God's with you. You're not going to be abandoned. You're not going to be left alone, kind of holding the 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 empty basket. He's really got this, and that the leaning you've been sensing is difficult, and as hard as it is for you, is exactly the right way. So. Um, and I want to. I want to just take a minute and pray into that. So, would you all mind just bowing your heads with me? Is there, is there anybody like that that you you resonate with? That you heard that is God's word to you. Yeah, thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you you don't leave us alone, um, and and that in this in the middle of this season of of decision making for these friends, um, you want them to know that you're with them, that you are guiding them that the decisions they're contemplating, the things they're considering are, uh, you've, you've got their back. You, you know who they are, you know where they are, and that as they contemplate this next choice, that gentle push, that gentle leaning, even though it's frightening and terrifying, you're with them and you will empower them. So I pray that you'd give them courage not to be, be paralyzed in indecision, but really to just lean into it and, and know that you're, you've, you're, you're going to care for them in the middle of this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, <clears throat> as Darren um, set up our series last, last week, he mentioned, and uh, just want to, I'm sorry for rehearsing this, but I think it's important for us to understand where this idea of the Caesars of Christmas come from. That is that um, the, the primary gospel story in the, in the Bible that we um, get our Christmas narratives from is mostly the Gospel of Luke. Um, and the way Luke writes his Gospel, particularly with the Incarnation, is to frame the story of Jesus' coming against the backdrop of the events taking place in the Roman Empire, and particularly a deliberate contrast with the birth narratives of the Caesars, who in the last 50 years had of the writing of the Gospel of Luke, uh, written 55, 60, 65, somewhere in that 10-year period of time, had, 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 had um, kind of declared themselves with Caesar Augustus to be kind of gods, to be the lords, to be the emperor, not just the rulers of, a, of an earthly kingdom, but to stand in a, a, a position of deity. And so Luke is deliberately writing his Gospel narratives uh, against the grandeur of the birth narratives of the Caesar in deliberate contrast to them as the one who we call Lord, Jesus, whom we call Lord, uh, is, is, um, comes, comes to, to life. And so with that in mind, uh, the idea that we had uh, in this series was just to say, what are the Caesars that are proclaiming themselves deities in our culture? What are the what are the ways that, that, that we are being demanded to worship? What are the, 
What are the dynamics in our culture that are, are framing and forming and shaping our cultural expectations in a way similar to what Caesar Augustus did uh, in the first century and began to happen increasingly. Remember, by the time we get to Luke, we've already, Caesar Augustus has, has gone the heyday, the highlight of the Roman Empire was a hundred years ago with Julius Caesar and then Caesar Augustus, and, and then they just gradually make way. By the time Luke is writing, the Caesar is Nero. The middle has failed. The bottom is falling out of the Roman Empire. They can already begin to feel the stench of their own death in the air. So that's the backdrop that Luke writes his gospel against. So the question is, what are the... What are the marks of our own cultural disintegration? What are the Caesars that still demand allegiance in our century that are failing? And that we as a community of the people of God aligned to Jesus as Lord want to push back against. And so one of the ones that we felt that would be worth talking about was busyness. The frenetic, frantic pace that centers itself around the holy days that have become nothing more than holidays. And I don't know if you're like me at all, but it's, it, you know, I look at my calendar and I recognize it's Christmas because I'm busy. Right? Uh, because of my various roles that I'm in, I, Jude and I counted last night, we've been invited to 10 Christmas parties. I'm an introvert. I don't like any Christmas parties. I would be happy to stay home. Do, 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 do you see? And, 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 and I mean, I, some of you, I'm just, just are, the more the better, the, the, the louder the merrier. I get that. That's, that's, I, God bless you. I'm glad that people like you exist on the planet. Just stay away from me. That's all I'm asking. Um, but in the middle of that, what are the, what are the, where does our addiction as a culture, do you recognize it? Our addiction almost to busyness. This, this frenetic activity, this doing, and I'm, I'm going to suggest to you that, that, that it's really rooted at some level in fear. And it comes in a number of forms. I think it's in, in a fear of not being noticed. If I don't make the rounds, if I don't backslap, if I don't high-five, if I don't show up, then, then, then I won't be noticed. I, I, I will. In fact, psychologists talk about one of the primal fears of the human creation, human beings, that shows up numerous times in, 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 in psychoanalysis, is the fear, they call it the fear of being weightless. The fear of walking the planet without making any impression at all, of disappearing at the end of one's life as if nothing had ever happened. The fear of weightlessness. And I think that that manifests itself in our, in our frenetic pace, in our busyness. That is a way to push back against this sense of, of, of insignificance and weightlessness. We just run around constantly trying to plug into as many different Lego blocks as we can and find significance, meaning, and value in the multiplicity of relationships that we experience. Not realizing that we have become water walkers. We've become those insects that, 
that, that, that move so quickly over the surface of the water, they don't even break the surface tension of the water. They don't sink down deeply enough. We don't sink down deeply enough into our own lives to be significant in the only ways that significance can possibly be measured. So in our, in our pace to avoid becoming insignificant, we become insignificant. Our busyness obviates our very lives. We're afraid that we're not going to be enough, and so we're driven to over-functioning. Maybe you've got somebody like that in your family system. Maybe you are that person in your family system who over-functions as a way of being noticed who's making the phone calls, who's making the connections, who's making sure everybody's okay and planning this and, and organizing that and, and so on and so forth. Maybe, maybe you're, you're, you, you've got that, that relative. As we, maybe everybody's got the same kind of person who you, you pick up the phone and you recognize their voice and you realize this is going to be an hour-long conversation in which your sum total contribution is going to be, uh-huh, yes, oh, really, oh, wow. And an hour later, you will hang up having said nothing more than that. Right? Or you can put the phone down and walk away for five minutes, come back, pick it up, and know exactly where he or she is in that conversation and not having missed your being gone. What does that about? What drives people? And it's the fear of not being adequate, not being enough, of not... not, not I have to make myself present to you in order to be present to myself. There's a fear that roots in that of not being enough. And the, and the truth is, I mean, when it, when it finally comes down to it, doing has become a primary way in which we now are. A primary way of being. And we, we can joke about it, and if it, if it weren't so sad, it would be kind of humorous. When, when we meet somebody for the first time, our first set of inquiries centers around what do you do. We're hopeful that in behind the doing is a person who can help us know who they are, but more often than not, we're stopped dead at the doing part of the conversation. Because we know what somebody does, we start to make connections about, and in fact, we discover pretty quickly that most people aren't, they just do. The lights are on, but nobody's home. There's the performance at the edges, but there's no there there. Do you see? And, and, and the more we believe I do, the more I am. And so we're busy. And if it's not busy at work, it's busy at home. And if it's not busy at home, it's busy in the neighborhood. If it's not busy at the neighborhood, maybe it's busy at the church. In fact, I think sometimes churches contribute to the hurry sickness that is creating a dissolution of soul. We can't do nothing well. Part of that, I think, too, is a way of hiding. Where if we stop, if we sink down, there are things that lurk just below the surface 
we're like that cartoon character that knows there's a shark under the water and so we run as fast as we can over the surface in the hopes that we don't sink down and get consumed. We're, it's a way of hiding from our own lives. Uh, we're dancing as fast as we can. We, we, we spackle and plaster all of the cracks and crevices in our lives and the stillnesses of our life so that there's, not a, there's, no, there's no traction, there's no ingress. And of course, prim- one of the primary ways of this in our culture is, is with media, with social media, right? whether you know Facebook or Twitter, you can get instant updates all the time. You can get with pictures of what somebody ate for dinner last night. Who cares? But it's important that everybody knows that. So we take pictures and we Instagram them. And then if we're fortunate, it'll show up on somebody's Pinterest page. Right? And it's fascinating to me. It's just fascinating to me uh, because I've worked primarily at the university with, you know, 18 to 22 year olds who are desperately, deeply afflicted with this. I know once you graduate from college, this now ceases to be a problem. But, 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 you know, they walk out of class with their, with their smartphones. I mean, it's like, it's like the shootout of the OK Corral waiting for the class to end so that I can, OK, now I can catch up with what's happened in the world. You know, and, the, and so they're texting this and, and they're back and forth and reading their things and they're, and, they're, and they're going down the halls kind of bumping up against one another like bumper cars at the, at the thing, wishing and hoping. And boy, I, I, I've seen a, pace, a Twitter, boy, I, I wish we had more community. I wish, oh, excuse me, I didn't see you there. I, 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 wish, I wish I knew people face to face. I don't know. I'm, what happens? Why do we do that? What's that about? And the truth of the matter is I'm more interested in what you had for dinner six hours ago than I'm interested in the person who's right in front of me, right here, right now. What's that about? That's plastering in the cracks and crevices of our lives so that there's no space. We're terrified of the stillness. We're terrified of the space. If I'm not doing, I'm not. The outcome of it, of course, is that we hide from our own lives. I had a a student this year. uh, Every year I teach uh, spiritual disciplines in the fall. And as one of the weekly assignments, I ask them to fast for 24 hours from solid food. So two meals is basically what it comes down to to them. And then to journal about that and to write on that. And every year, uh, I, I have somebody, this year particularly, however, is a, a young woman that I'm, I'm thinking of, who, um, because of an eating disorder previously, we determined that it was not going to be wise for her to fast because there was still too much um, uh, residual stuff connected to that for her. And so she decided that instead of fasting food, she was going to fast social media for 16 weeks of the semester. Every time she told, whenever she told her friends like that, it was like she had decided to fall off the face of the earth. And and in, I'm just starting now to, as the final assignments, to read some of the journals on this. And 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 she's writing, and she said, in the first month, it was hell. I felt like I was completely and utterly disconnected from anything that mattered, and I didn't know what was going on, and I wasn't present with my friends, and I didn't know whatever. But then she says, after about four to six weeks, 
I discovered that I was more present to myself and thus to the people who were near me. I had conversation with my roommate that a month ago would not have been possible. I had a conversation with my mom that before we would have just emailed or texted back and forth. But because I was fasting that method of communication, I had to talk to her. What would happen if we slowed down enough to be where we are when we're there? And it's the terror of that that pushes us to the frenetic busyness that is one of the Caesars of Christmas. This is what celebration looks like. Careening the bumper cars of our life, bouncing off one another, and we're calling it relationships. In the middle of all of that, I think it's important for us to remember how the Roman Empire dealt with this, how the Caesars themselves dealt with the, what we're talking about. You may know this already, uh, but when the Caesars uh, began to move into political power through um, their, their various machinations politically and militarily and assassinations and various other things, one of the primary ways that they celebrated their triumphs in various places was by building circuses building the, 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 the stadiums holding tens of thousands of people who would then celebrate a reenactment of the battle that had taken place in the far reaches of the empire. So the people in Rome, the people at home, the people in Philippi, the people in the places where the Colosseums or the circuses were built would be able to enter into and celebrate the great victories of the Caesar at far distances away. And of course, around that, you would have carnivals and you'd have barkers and the, who would be selling various merch. So it became a real social central place. In fact, this Circus Maximus, the largest of, the, of, of them, it still exists today. It's just uh, within eyesight almost of the, of the Colosseum, which is still standing. If you've been, been there, the Maximus is now a city park. But, but it used to, they, they, they used to have chariot races that would, would, would you see it like in Ben-Hur and various other uh, uh, of the of the movies and they would sometimes they would flood the circus so that they could stage a sea battle for the entertainment of the citizens at Rome and that that was all well and good in the or, original but as corruption began to come into the center of the s structure of the imperial palace uh, it coincided with famine in the areas around the city. And when the crops began to fail, people left their land and moved into the city. The city, which now had no adequate tax base to support those who had moved in. So you have acres and acres, tens of thousands of square miles of farmland now just left and their residents flooding into the city, wanting food and shelter and employment, a city which could not support it. And you know what the Caesar's response was? 
bread and circuses. Let's entertain them so that they don't notice the corruption at the top leading down to death at the bottom. Let's entertain them to death, bread and circuses. So those things that were built to celebrate the triumph of imperial Rome quickly became synonymous with a culture of hiding, a culture of distraction, a culture of pretense. You might be interested to know, because uh, the, the, the author of the, I would, I would say one of the publishing phenomena of last year, The Hunger Games, Suzanne Collins, I think her name is, uses that whole framework as the premise against which she writes her novels, where, where the provinces providing agricultural resources to the capital begin to rebel against it, are crushed, flooding people, and now on a regular basis executing for the entertainment of the citizenry of the capital, capital selected boys and girls who come to do battle for the entertainment. You might be interested, I mean, those of you who have read The Hunger Games know that the provinces are called Panem, P-A-N-E-M. How many would be interested to know the Latin for bread? It's the same word. Let them eat bread and go to the circuses. Bread and circuses, Panem and circuses. The Caesars of Christmas that demand our attention so that we don't notice the emptiness. So as we sit with this, we need to recognize that it wasn't that different in Bethlehem. This Caesar Augustus, of whom we speak, had the power with an edict to set the whole machinery of the Roman Empire in motion and rotation. He sent out a, an edict that all the world should be taxed. All the world should be taxed. First to pay, but also so that the imperial Caesar could declare that he was the king of the world. He had say with a pen stroke over the lives of millions of people. What a strength of ego. And so Mary and Joseph, by that time betrothed, by that time married, had moved down months before to Bethlehem, awaiting finally the census that took, in some estimates, up to 18 months to take place. And there they were, in Bethlehem staying at, a, at an ancestral home. Perhaps they had purchased a home. Perhaps they had, were living with relatives. We don't know. And the time came for the baby to be born. And so crowded were the conditions in Bethlehem that in the home in which they were residing, there was no room. There was no place for the baby to be born. 
And I recognize those of us who have been raised on, on, on narrators and bathrobes and children's Sunday school concerts at Christmas have the innkeeper saying, there is no room in the inn. Unfortunately, that is not how it went down. The word in there literally means place. And what Luke is saying, in contrast to the Caesars of Christmas, first century, for this Jesus Lord who would come, there was no place for Him to enter. So they ended up in a cleaned out stable. The animals, as you recall, are out on the... It's, it's probably early, late spring. So the animals are out on the hills surrounding Bethlehem, the sh sheep, who normally would have been in if it were winter, but were not. They were out. And so they cleaned up this stable, and that's where, in contrast to Augustus, the Lord, not just of earth, but of heaven as well, was born. There was no place for him. And I think that's what happens when we're busy. We spackle over the cracks and the crevices, the points of entry. We work as hard as we possibly can to fill every moment. We shoehorn things in so that there is no stillness. There is no there, there. There is no room in. There's no place for the dear Christ to enter in. What's the solution? How do we push back against this relentless busyness by which we are defined, by which we hide, by which we are distracted? Because that's the other part of the busyness, isn't it? It's the distractions. We have long since ceased to care whether what glitters is gold or not. Now we're relentlessly attracted to what glitters, and that's enough. The bright lights, the shiny, that's good enough. And the answer comes fundamentally from the words of Jesus himself. Um, we're going to look at them briefly this morning. So here's what he says. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, this is Matthew chapter 11, because you have hidden these things from the wise, from the learned. Can we just fill in from the busy, from the distracted, from the frenetic, and instead have revealed them to little children. Those of you who have got young children know that the best way to recover the wonder of Christmas is to see it through their eyes for the first time. Yes, Father, this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. 
No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So come to me, all you who are weary and burdened and busy and distracted, worn out by your frenetic activity, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, take my teaching, take my way of life upon you. Learn how to live your life from me. I'm gentle, I'm humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Because my way of life is easy and my burden is light. What's the pushback in this season? What's the pushback? It's to relearn the rhythms that were built into the fabric of the universe from the very beginning of creation. You will recall that the very first thing that happens on each creative day is evening and then morning. And that's day one, evening and morning and day two and so on. The very first thing creation does every day is rest. And out of the rest of that evening comes the activity of the day which they join in to a program already in progress. And at the end of that sixth cycle of evening and morning comes a day in which rest is the order of the day. So you see here this seven-beat rhythm with a full stop on the seventh day in which no work is to be done. And out of that Sabbath, out of that rest, comes the building on the next rhythm. And then as part of the life of the community, it did not take long for them to establish a regular rhythm of holy days. So we have this weekly reminder that we're built to live in a rhythm first of rest, then of work, rest and then work. And then a seventh day in which we rest completely so that the work that flows out of it on the eighth day, the first day, comes out of rest. This is what Jesus is saying. Come to me and I'll give you back what you've lost with your frenetic busyness. Learn how to work and you'll find rest. And those holy days, three, at least a year in which we take three, four, five, six days to come together with family and friends and good food and good drink, and we enjoy one another, we're present to one another, that is viewed as, that rhythm is restorative to the soul. But what have we done? What have we done? We've taken those holy days and collapsed them until they're now nothing more than holidays. What do we do as the citizens, not of this Caesar of Christmas, but of the true Lord who has come to be with us? What do we do? We prepare him room. We stop. We deliberately slow. That's what Advent is about the speed bumps on the way to the holy day 
so that when it comes, we can be present and don't just let momentum push us through it. We can be present with a life adequate to receive the dear Christ who desires to enter in. I want you to listen to a couple of quotes. I rarely do this because it's, it's, it's hard for me to read poetry and get it right. But the first set comes from, the first um, statement, it's not a poem, but comes from Thomas Kelly. You may recognize his, his book, A Testament of Devotion. And he says this, Lead a listening life. Lead a listening life. Order your outward life so that nothing drowns out the listening. And this poem by Denise uh, Levertov called Consent from her uh, larger work, Annunciation. She says, this was the minute no one speaks of when she could still refuse a breath unbreathed, spirit suspended and waiting. She did not cry, I cannot, I am not worthy, nor I have not the strength. She did not submit with gritted teeth, raging, coerced, rather bravest of all humans. Consent illumined her. The room filled with its light. The lily glowed in it and the iridescent with iridescent wings. Consent. Courage unparalleled opened her utterly. Let's pray. I'm going to invite you as we sit in stillness for just a moment. Faith and Pete come back. To just create a moment of stillness here. A moment of silence. A little crack, a little crevice in the busyness of this day, this week, this moment. Where there is a place for Christ to be born. A place for Him in. In.